Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And joining us to preview the Texans-Browns playoff matchup is USA Today's Texans Wire Analyst and Holy Innocence Middle School Football Championship Coach John Crumpler. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks for the shout-out. Are you fighting with Bobby Slowick for head coaching interviews right now? I mean, we we ran the triple option, so I fear that my background makes me deeply, <laughs> deeply unqualified to touch an NFL offense. But uh, you know, if they uh, if you, they need a call up, triple option, <laughs> holy smokes! That, that's so what I thought. Uh, we had some the Texans were rolling out with last weekend, and when they started the game with a three tight end set, I'm like, what the hell are we looking at here? What are they doing? <laughs> I thought it was hilarious that they averaged they averaged like 15 yards a play on those three tight end packages, which is pretty amazing. But yeah, you know, a little old fashioned who says you can't be explosive off of heavier personnel formations. Right. There you go. There you go. Hey, lots of angles on the Browns game Saturday, but guys, when you look at the Browns beat down of the Texans two weeks ago, the story defensively, Amari Cooper, 11 catches, 265 yards. I don't have to remind anybody about that, but John, you made a note. That was very interesting, the angle on the roots from that game. I want you to expand a little bit on that, and then maybe, Sean, you can follow up with what the Texans coaches said the last couple of days about their defense against the Browns and maybe what's going to be different about that this Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I've been tweeting about it this week. I think it was the best game by a receiver this entire season. If you For the advanced stacks, I think he had uh, 23 expected points added by himself, and no other receiver this year added more than 20. They did not have answers with him. You look at the splits between Derek Stingley and Steven Nelson, and they're surprisingly even. I think that for people watching the game, it definitely felt like Stingley was a better matchup, and I think he did start to travel with Amari Cooper at some point. But what really killed the Texans was on these vertical routes, and safety play is something that has plagued the team this entire season. And on vertical routes, when Amari Cooper was allowed to work down the field, he had over 200 yards in all of his touchdowns against the Texans last game. So going into this one, I think they had to have a better game plan to contain him because the idea that this late in the season, they're going to start having Stingley travel. I don't think that's going to happen. That's not something Ryan's has done before. Maybe Sean would have some information that uh, we're not privy to about that, but I think it is going to have to have a little more uh, discipline safety play. You need Jalen Petrie to have one of his better performances of this year, but overall making sure that you're on top of him and you, you can't let Joe Flacco beat you in a really goofy way. And that's kind of what happened last game. Yeah, you're right. I mean, D'Amico Ryans was asked directly about that um, after that game. You know, why not have Stingley, you know, follow Cooper? And he just flat out said, that's just not what we do. But you are right. You know, Stingley wound up on Cooper uh, multiple times after he burned D'Angelo Ross and Jalen Petrie in that uh, first big play. I think that was the 53-yarder, and then uh, there was a 75-yard touchdown. You know, there's a couple of things there, but look, Cooper made some great catches on Derek Stingley, too. It really didn't matter who you had on him. It was the ball placement from Joe Flacco, the time that he had in the pocket, the ability to let receivers get deeper into their routes that just made things work so well for the Browns that day, and they were able to exploit the Texans. But Matt Burke spoke today with Houston Media, and he said, man, after going back and watching that game, 
Cooper made some great catches. D'Amico even said it again. It was almost like they probably sat down together and watched the film, and they were like, holy smokes, like, what do you do? What do you do with a guy like that when you have those throws and that ball hawk ability by Cooper just to go make plays on the sideline or reach up and get it? A couple of things that I think are interesting about it is, you know, you keep in mind, the Texans defensively, they didn't have Will Anderson that day. They didn't have Blake Cashman that day. Malik Collins only played 57% of the snaps. Jimmy Ward, you know, he only played four snaps before he went down with the season-ending injury. So there's a lot of little elements there, certainly defensively, that the Texans are going to have at their disposal this Saturday. Obviously, Jimmy Ward done for the year, but... Jalen Petrie talked about it today. Look, he took what happened against the Browns personal. He's learned a lot more about uh, communication with DeAndre Houston Carson and Adrian Amos, guys that he's been back there working with, Kareem Jackson to a degree, you know, who's been a part of this team now for a week and a half. So he feels like he's corrected some of those things that led to that. But I also think a big part of this is you have Blake Cashman back in the middle and the ability to you know, carry a guy like David Njoku, who was the centerpiece really of what has made Joe Flacco successful the last month and a half. He's been the leading receiver or top target getter in three of their four wins. None of the starters played this past weekend, so I don't even look at that game as a reference point for the Browns. But Njoku's led this team in receiving, and it's the way that he's doing it. He runs a lot of stuff underneath. And they get the ball to him pretty quickly. He's not just diced up, you know, Texan linebackers. Didn't even have one of his better games against him a few weeks ago. But he dices up linebackers all the time. And Blake Cashman being one of the best coverage guys, I think the ability for him to carry Njoku into, you know, zones where he can be picked up, that's going to help what the Texans don't allow underneath. And I think that should also help the corners and the safeties in better coverage on guys like Amari Cooper. They should be able to uh, disguise some things differently. And Sean, I, I love you bringing up the point about the defensive line because I think we both talked about kind of these back-breaking explosives that Cooper brought to the last game. And of course, the safety play where you're talking about with Petrie and having better communication with his teammates, that's going to be huge. But the other part of vertical developing route concepts is they take time. And not having Will Anderson out there the last game, or sh I think Sheldon Rankins, or was it Malik Collins that missed the last one? I know one of them. Uh, Collins Collins didn't miss, but he you know he only played in half of the snaps. Rankins, I started going back and forth. I didn't I didn't notate that Rankins wasn't available that game. He may not have been, but if he wasn't, that certainly would be a big one too. I, I think they were missing two of their at least one other rotational piece of Anderson and. Just if you can put pressure on Flacco around the edges, you start to take time away for Cooper to work down the field. And if you add those two things with, I mean, I love to talk about regression in football. It is a game on the margins, and that means that if you shoot the shot 100 times, you know, maybe 40 times he's going to catch that, but the other 60 times, like we talked about Amari Cooper's incredible plays, he's not. So this is an offense that I'm really excited to see again for all of the personnel things that Sean talks about and the simple fact that there's nothing that they do that breaks scheme, if that makes sense. They – they don't have anyone who's like, oh, you know, you really just can't account for that. Like it's Amari Cooper's a very good player. Najoku's having a bit of a breakout with Flacco. And 
Flacco is just slinging it right now. But how well he's been doing that, if you keep doing it time and time again, you're going to force mistakes. And this is an offense that I think D'Amico Ryans will be excited to face for a second time because schematically having all of your players back, you can start to work towards some better solutions than coming out and last game you're dead in the water. I pulled it up. Nine targets for seven receptions, 214 yards, and two touchdowns on Amari Cooper's 21 vertical routes. So nearly half the time making a catch of generating a a 120 quarterback rating. So I think they'll be a little excited to remove that explosive, at least somewhat out of the equation and make it a more honest football game. Sorry to throw out a scary stat, guys, but in Joe Flacco's nine playoff starts, yeah, I've been on football reference this week. He's thrown 24 touchdowns and four interceptions. Now, maybe the good news is his last start was nine years ago today. John, do you remember what happened the last time the Texans faced Joe Flacco in the playoffs? Did you look up the numbers from that day? I did not, but I gather you're about to tell us. And (laughs) if I recall that playoff run, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, it, it was 12 years ago. Uh, He was 14 of 27 for 176 yards. Doesn't sound good. Two touchdowns, no picks. J.J. Watt chasing him all over the place. Two and a half sacks, three quarterback hits. Brooks Reed also had two and a half sacks. Meanwhile, the problem was T.J. Yates. Uh, If you remember, he threw three interceptions. And a kid named C.J. Stroud was 12 years old, John, that particular day. So it's old news for C.J. Stroud. (laughs) I'll say this, um, you know, for the all, the Flacco stats, you know, the touchdown to interception ratio for as intimidating as that might sound, regardless of it, the bulk of it being, you know, a while ago. I'll raise you those stats with these stats. Joe Flacco, while he's thrown for 300 plus yards the last four games during that stretch, he also has at least one interception over the course of his last five. The worst stretch of his career came in 2016 when he did it six times but he's also fumbled the ball four times in the last four games and looking back over his history certainly in the regular season I paid less attention to his uh, postseason resume but he's a guy that can be had he's a guy that routinely has struggled holding on to the ball when faced with a lot of pressure up front and being forced to move about the pocket. Matt Burke talked about it today. He said, you know, one of the stereotypes by Joe Flacco is that he's a statue in the pocket. And it's like, that's just not true. You know, you go back and look, certainly what he's done over the course of the last four games with the Cleveland Browns, he's been able to maneuver in the pocket and create just an extra millisecond of time for a route to develop. I mean, heck, you go back to one of those throws that he made. I don't, it doesn't matter who caught the pass. It was just a fantastic throw. And a catch too but he was in the grasp you know like two or three texans had him dead to rights was about to bring him down and the dude just stood strong in there and flung it 20 some odd yards down the field for a completion it's like what do you do about some of that stuff but i i think what 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 john said the the hope that you have will anderson available jonathan grenard available the depth that you have in Derek barnett in Majai Sanders, we don't know the status of Jerry Hughes yet. He was a DNP today. That's a little worrisome. That's probably the biggest one that I worry about because he's been that depth when Grenard's been out, when Will Anderson's been out. You need all hands on deck. If he's able to go, it should be a completely different looking uh, Joe Flacco on Saturday, in my opinion. 
The old guy taking a break midweek. You don't think that's this old man getting a day of rest? No, because, I mean, he got hurt. You know, he left the game this past weekend. He got tripped up, landed funky. You know, that's a older 35, about to be 36-year-old body hitting the ground in that fashion. And uh, he's been asked to do a lot more recently. And I think to a lesser degree, but I think it does factor in a guy that they've had to use sparingly throughout the season. When you're going through, you know, the course of a regular season at that age and you're asked to all of a sudden turn it up. I mean, it's almost like, hey, just chill. When we need you, we need you. And they've desperately needed Jerry Hughes here recently and getting that old body to kind of click. There's going to be some bumps, bruises, and ailments that you don't get over in the course of a week that, like last year when he led the team in sacks with nine, playing every day, almost every snap, you know, you can dial it up. Your your body's used to it. You're mentally used to it. That's something that Jerry Hughes has had to kind of adapt himself to the way that they've used him now. And I don't think people have been honest about Jerry Hughes and his importance as a rotational player. I think the temptation, and of course, it's more fun to talk about guys like a Derek Barnett, like a Majai Sanders, these in-season pickups, the team working the waiver wire to target younger, good fits for D'Amico Ryan's defense. But you go to last Saturday without Jonathan Grenard, it was not Derek Barnett stepping up with the quarterback pressures. It was not Sanders. It was Hughes. And they struggled to get to Minshew, but you, you look at the numbers and he was the one that was actually able to change the picture more consistently for Minshew. So I agree with you, his availability and just having more bodies to throw at Flacco and he might get away for some, but like you said, this is a guy who historically can be got. And if you look at this year, 13 touchdowns to eight interceptions, well, I guess we're almost a two to one, but still not fantastic. Um, if you if you have the pressure, I think you're going to get the turnovers to follow at some point. Yeah. And look, it was the run game, too. If you go back to last weekend, the Colts were obviously able to do whatever they wanted to do in the run game until, you know, they had 30 carries between Moss and uh, Jonathan Taylor, 30 carries for the game. 16 of their last 30 carries went for just 27 yards. It Mm. happened after Jerry Hughes left the game with an injury. I don't know what changed schematically. I don't know if they decided to change gap responsibility thereafter. But what did change personnel-wise was they used Will Anderson off the edge. And you know how badass he's been this season against the run. It was him and Magi Sanders bookends for a lot of that time to finish that game and you know maybe blame the Colts a little bit for sticking with the run a little too long you know we've certainly seen and killed the Texans for doing just that earlier in the season but sometimes it's necessary sometimes you just think boy if we could break we broke you know a handful already in this game we just need one more and maybe let Gardner finish him out that didn't happen, and Steichen was hell-bent on trying to get that to work. It didn't happen, but maybe the Texans found some sort of answer there in the second half and really the last quarter and a third when they turned up the heat on the Colts defensively and shut that run game down. It helped that Jonathan Taylor was banged up too, didn't it, John? Yeah, I mean, nice to not have him on there for the last play, albeit I, I think Steichen had a great call there. That ball's caught nine out of ten times. But, yeah, I mean, Indianapolis is one of the better running teams in the league, and when we talk about that aspect, you introduce a component that if Houston's going to have an advantage here, where last week it was really tough because every time Minshew went to throw and 
they actually had a fantastic game plan for how Indianapolis wanted to attack through the air. But generally, he was in favorable passing situations. Last game, Jerome Ford, 15 carries for 25 yards. Kareem Hunt, 7 carries for 11 yards. I mean, you had Pierre Strong, their third string, 5 for 22, but none of them ran the ball particularly well. And this week, you could have Anderson, who is probably – the most effective edge like for what they do in the run support and Grenard both back there. So that aspect of what they figured out the run game, Sean, what you're talking about, if you can combine that into this game and consistently put Joe Flacco in third and seven, third and nine, third and plus situations, that's when, okay, maybe the pressure has a chance to get there. You let Stingley uh, make a big play. John, I just got to thank the NFL for giving the Texans the best officiating crew they could find. I'm sure everybody remembers Clay Martin and his crew's incredible, impeccable work with the Texans' Jags in Week 12. Uh, What did you think about that? (laughs) You're actually breaking news. Uh, Go ahead, because you can speak to this a little bit. I did not – I don't pay attention to the referee crew. Yeah, Sean, so – Clay Martin's crew was designated to ref this game. Houston hasn't seen them since the home game against the Jaguars that had, I mean, probably three or four, I would call, egregious pass interference calls. They're at least very ticky-tacky. In addition to the missed Derek Stingley call that gave us an intercept, that gave him a turnover. I was a little surprised. I, I haven't followed the the crews closely. I'm not going to pretend I'm some NFL ref savant and I'm, I'm watching all these crews and you know, but I do think the irony of the, the general social media viewer consensus is how does Clay Martin get to ref a playoff game if this is how it looks against high, like high flying offenses and, Lo and behold, they're going to put him not just back in Houston, but against a quarterback that is really just letting it fly more than anyone in the league right now. So with the way the Texans defensive backs play, I don't think any of D'Amico Ryan's shy away from physicality. I I am a little concerned about how those calls could shake up. National journalists were talking about that during the game. I mean, we had we saw tweets from national journalists speaking to that during the game. And you just don't see anybody paying attention to the Texans. And it's surprising when national guys are going, wait a second, what's going on with this officiating crew? It's pretty bad. Yeah, no, y'all refreshed my memory now. That was the barbecue brisket game. And I say that because that was when Tavi or Thomas was smoked like a brisket in a wood pellet fired grill, man. I remember that. But as many bad calls that were in that game, and I know that you, you referenced one where the Texans actually benefited from, uh, I think it was a Stingley interception, yeah, um, the hold on Ingram. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You know what? You don't have Tavi or Thomas in the mix anymore either. Um, you got Des King, you know, who's slotted back into that role and has been a fit since day one and should have been here since day one uh, routinely. But, boy, that one, yeah, I remember. But Christian Kirk, it was like no matter who Tavi or Thomas was on that week, it could have been Christian Kirk, could have been Calvin Ridley, could have been Ingram. They all burnt that dude badly, put him in a blender. The fact that you have that referee crew, which, if I remember correctly, at the time at least, was known for the most stringent against defensive pass interference. They they called it the most tight. And that was also against the team, I think the Texans at the time, that had Mm -hmm. the most penalties. (laughs) And against the Jaguars at the time that had drawn the fewest. And so it made perfect sense, I guess, then in the course of a season to make sure you call as clean a game as possible. And we know how that went. It wasn't very clean at all. But I don't know. 
I mean, heck, we're talking about, you know, the second matchup of these two teams in the last three weeks and the second time that the Texans are going to have to face this referee crew. Maybe the referee crew has cleaned some things up, but I do have to say that with a uh, massive tongue in cheek. (laughs) I do agree with you that, like, the players and the teams matter. Like, clearly, Doug Peterson, Trevor Lawrence had seen something on film that, that week that said, oh, Thomas, he's he's pretty grabby. We've got some guys in the slot, primarily Christian Kirk, Evan Ingram, that can benefit off that. Steven Nelson, too, who's notoriously a very handsy cornerback. Yeah, there was a bad Steven Nelson call early in a drive that really was a, a biggie. And, I mean, just a, there was a couple of them near the goal. I mean, I just – I can still remember almost all of them. It was that bad. And, Sean, I, I just – I'm curious, you know, look like Robert Woods could be ready Saturday from practice – Wednesday, but doesn't look like Noah Brown or Gennard making any progress. Are they? Uh, you know, progress, that's kind of subjective and really unknown. I'll say this. It was last week when everybody that was a DNP was actually visible on a practice field. Now, look, last week, before you were going against the Colts, that was effectively your first playoff game because it was a winner-go-home situation. So you had to do two things. One, keep every bit of hope alive that if these guys are deemed at least available and they could give you a couple of handfuls of snaps, at least they're taking mental reps. And then two, you want these guys to be seen on a practice field because there's people like me that are out there tweeting and shooting video and things like that. So you want to at least give the appearance, if it's nothing more than just window dressing, to your opponent that, hey, there's a shot that these guys can play. So all of that makes sense um, from a football sense. In terms of what I saw, I haven't seen Jonathan Gennard play football in two weeks, so I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I've heard that he's probably going to try to give it a go, but how effective he is, who knows, man. If he can give you 12 snaps like Will Anderson did a couple of weeks ago before he was asked to play 35 against the Colts, fantastic. Do that. You need it because I trust D'Amico to use him situationally to where they can get the most out of him. The same thing with Will Anderson. I guarantee you they didn't want him to play 35 snaps last weekend, but you needed him when Jerry Hughes went down. It was valuable. You needed every bit of it. Is it more around 30, 35, maybe 40 snaps defensively for Will Anderson? I think a lot of that depends on Jerry Hughes, and he was flat out DNP, did not see that cat today. So he's probably getting work done. I feel good about Robert Woods. I think the reason why they held him out last week, and this is just my opinion, is that they felt good enough about the receiver core and their game plan going in against the Colts that they said, you know what, we're going to need this guy. We're going to need this guy down the road. No point in chancing it now if we're going to need him for the longer haul. So I feel good about Woods. He looked good, seemed in good spirits. Noah Brown, that's a different cat. He always looks like somebody shot his dog. He's got a back issue. Um, I've heard it's a pretty severe injury. Though I heard encouraging news today, and I take it with a grain of salt, that there is a chance that he could try and play through this. But I think tomorrow's a very big day for guys like Robert Woods, Noah Brown, Jonathan Renard. If they can even be limited guys, I think that's a good sign. At least for the two receivers, I think you desperately need one of them because – I mean, you know, you had guys step up and play a lot of snaps last week. John Mechie, I think his highest count of the season. I don't know what happened to Baltimore Hutchinson. Maybe it was 
uh, for the blocking component. Clearly, Houston wanted to threaten the run against Indianapolis, but it was pretty evident that the offensive play calling and probably Stroud himself did not trust any receiver not wearing number 12 to make plays. And at least we've seen if you do get a Robert Woods back, is he a dynamic game breaker? No. Is he someone that you trust to run those outs and corner routes that Stroud's very good at throwing and you have someone else that can move the chains? Yes. Do you have another reliable blocker who's not a zero in the passing game? Yes. So I I agree with you that it's huge to at least, I I have no idea. I'm not going to say I expect Brown to play at the back injury, but if you can get Robert Woods back, your passing game can feel a little less gimmicky than it had to last week. I want to send out some thank you notes. First of all, the Texans missed John Grenard, but we got to thank the Eagles because Derek Barnett's pro football focus grade for the Texans is 90.7. And John, should the Texans send the Titans two thank you notes? They did a couple of favors in the last week, some biggies for us. I would say yes. I mean, not only, I think two large thank you notes to the Titans. One, taking care of Jacksonville and giving Houston the division, regardless of what anyone says about playing Cleveland right now, I think for how young this football team is, at least in terms of its composition and some of its key players, you want to play at home. You always want to play at home. If you had to go to Kansas City this week where it's going to be below zero degrees, I don't care how bad Kansas City's playing. Huge to win the division, huge for momentum and talking points. And, you know, I'd write an additional thank you note for firing Mike Vrabel. Thank you for getting one of the NFL's most consistent, reliable head coaches out of the division. Maybe you'll upgrade on the head coaching market, but history shows uh, when you have a coach like that, you're about as likely, if not more likely, to miss than to actually come away with an upgrade. So cheers to the franchise in Tennessee. I uh, I think they got what was coming their way after wearing the Oilers colors. Yeah. Uh, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't agree yeah. enough on that one. I think they did Vrabel a favor. And then I, I like I like Vrabel. I, I liked him when he was here. <laughs> I didn't want him to leave. You know, that was a guy who'd spent one year as a defensive coordinator and then parlayed that into a head coaching job for the next, you know, eight years in Tennessee. And for all the reasons that we know, and we all hate the Tennessee Titans for one reason or another, and probably no bigger than V1, but man, their owner is a strong one right now. And I I think they did him a massive favor because you look now with the, uh, uh, firing of Pete Carroll up in Seattle. There's six, what, seven now, I think, really, really good openings throughout the league. And Vrabel's going to have seemingly his choice. He decides to go back up to New England, looks at the Chargers, looks at Seattle. I mean, he's going to have his choice. And I might um, comment on the the owner standpoint. You know, it was frustrating at times the past few years with, with the McNairs. I felt like you didn't hear from them at, at pivotal moments, especially as, as the franchise stumbled. This really over a, a three-year period. But that interview she did with the team media, I uh, I almost appreciated. I'm like, you know, better to, to keep your mouth shut than to talk to everyone and really open yourself up to, you know, talking about it would have taken too long to execute a trade for, I think, a guy that you know you could get draft capital from a team that wants a reliable head coach. So it's so nice and crazy a difference a year makes with the owner situation and how that's perceived. Final thoughts, John, on this game and just, you know, what you're expecting, what you're, ho- what you're hoping for from, from the Texans on Saturday? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a really close game. I think this is a totally different football game than the first time that they played. We go back to last game. You did not have C.J. Stroud. So not only are you struggling to put points on the board, but you're also putting your defense on the field more. You're giving that really dangerous Joe Flacco. We spent so much time talking about more chances to roll the dice, potentially hit one of those explosive plays. As we covered ad nauseum, the ch- uh, getting people back on the defensive line, getting Blake Cashman to work those stuff over the middle and kind of take Najoku out of the game a little bit more than last time. I, I think this matches up very well for Houston against an offense that you want to play again. Against that, okay, if they keep doing that, it should not be as successful as we saw the first time. And I think they're going to have some different answers. With that said, Cleveland is number one in the NFL in cash spending for this year. That is a demonstrably more talented roster than I think what the Texans are dealing with right now is even though Houston has overperformed, I think Cleveland's probably at a different level. This isn't a game that I'm necessarily expecting them to win, but I do think at home, I think they're currently a two point dog. I'll take Houston to win because they've got the quarterback. And this is a team that just with the composition and an older quarterback, it feels gimmicky to me. It's sound, but at the same time, Sound is not enough when you get to the NFL playoffs. And if Houston can just make one or two plays on the defensive side of the ball, it it feels like there's a tipping point where you could push through and some of that Browns magic might unravel. Well, go check out John's stuff on USA Today's Texans Wire. It's at John H. Crumpler on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it these days. But uh, great to have you, John, as always. Thanks a bunch. Looking forward to Saturday. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Always love talking ball, y'all. Thanks, John. Good stuff, Sean. And I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what to expect, but I just don't expect the same type of game that we saw the last time these two guys play. I mean, you brought it up. Blake Cashman did not play. Will Anderson did not play. C.J. Stroud, oh yeah, he's pretty good too. He didn't play either. And, uh, you know, there was a question in the course of our conversation about Sheldon Rankin. Sheldon Rankin's play. All all the guys that you just mentioned were huge as well. They're going to have a different right tackle this time. George Fant, well, presumably. George Fant was the right tackle on the Texans' first team takeoff today. I talked to George after uh, practice in the locker room. I didn't speculate. I didn't directly ask him about it, just kind of derived through our conversation that it's trending in that direction, that George Fant will most likely resume his role as starting right tackle for the Texans this week. So there's that. Uh, Brevin Jordan, another good one, played in just a quarter of the snaps the last time these two teams faced off. He's averaged over the course of the last five games 50% of the offense's snaps. So the personnel is going to be different. It's easy if you're D'Amico Ryans, Bobby Slowick, Matt Burke to psych your guys up about the matchup because, as Matt Burke said today, we've got a lot of players that we didn't have. We uh, are a, a new team. We've got C.J. Stroud. They've added some pieces, you know, moving them in and out and stuff like that. So it's going to be a, a refresher, you know, so to speak. However, I don't have a great feeling about this game, but I have as good a feeling about this game as I did at any point during the course of a regular season. And it's because of what you and John just said. You got the quarterback, C.J. Stroud. That's why 
they're going to have a chance to win this game in the fourth quarter. And that's really all that you can ask for because everything that John said is so true. They spent a ton of money. They've got a more talented roster, but you've got the belief factor in a pretty good roster yourself. And I think while you could say that the Texans have overperformed this season, that's certainly true. I also think you underestimated a lot of the guys that were on this roster uh, before the season. And maybe number one being a guy like Nico Collins. You see what exactly he's meant to this team. And he's just to name one, Blake Cashman, a career special teams ace. Are you kidding me? Now you're pining for the days where he gets his ass back out in the middle and makes plays for you. I, I got a I got a pretty solid feeling that the Texans have have an opportunity to win this game in the fourth quarter on Saturday. C.J. Stroud has never played in a playoff game. But C.J. Stroud has played in playoff games. He played in one last week. He was great. He played in one last year for the national semifinal. He was incredible. Ohio State, practically every game that you're playing at Ohio State has got to feel like a playoff game. And he was pretty good just about every single time. So Yeah, he's, he's got two to one. Uh, over anybody else on the roster in terms of at least playing in primetime games because he played in one a year ago you know, against yeah. Georgia. And then uh, obviously the Colts game, primetime game. So primetime games, playoff games, is a stage too big? Can it be big enough? That's really the question, you know, for C.J. Stroud. And that, that's one thing you don't worry about with a rookie quarterback like him is the guy just treats a noon uh, a nooner on Sunday against XYZ team doesn't matter just as he was, you know, around a one playoff game. The guy's psyched up about it. Yeah. <laughs> From that regard, you got to feel pretty good about the guy's demeanors remained even keel all season long. He's had some really high highs and, you know, the really low, low dealing with the concussion, not playing all kinds of different changes on the offensive line, receiver core, no run game. And he still has done what he's done. It's been tremendous. And how about this? I'll, I'll throw another angle that maybe you're not thinking about. Hail to the victors, because we just saw the Michigan Wolverines win the national championship. So there's a little bit of magic, Wolverine magic at NRG Stadium. Can Nico Collins back it up with some more Wolverine magic at NRG Stadium this week? That's a, just another angle I would throw at you there, Sean. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Harbaugh was asked a couple of times this last week about Nico Collins, and uh, he had some pretty good things to say about it. There's no question. Nico, same thing about Michigan. Called a shot, as he should, as you would expect him to. And uh, he, he came out on top, man. So, hey, uh, Texans need all kinds of home cooking they can get. And if you got a the the aura, the vibe still hanging over of the national championship, and the Wolverines taking it at your house, hey, I'll take that too. They need it. I know the sports world is sad to learn today about the retirement of Oilers defensive backs coach, Houston Oilers defensive backs coach. Watch this, Sean. Nick Saban. There he is. Oilers defensive back coach, Nick Saban, has retired from football today. And there he is with June Jones, former Houston roughneck coach, Obviously, his days as well with the Gamblers and the Houston Cougars and the, and the Oilers and all that. And there's Jerry Glanville, the Oilers head coach. 
what a duo out of that trio right there between <laughs> Saban and Glanville. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, man, that rocked the college football world. Hell, that rocked, rocked the sports world, you know, just over the last few hours learning about Saban's stepping down. And you can attribute it to just one and one thing only, and that is what the CFP has become with the uh, NIL money and the transfer portal. I mean, you, you just know it. If you read between the lines, pretty vast. Nick Saban's been fed up with it, you know, for some time now. If, if Alabama makes the CFP playoff this year, like, is this a thing? You know, I, I don't know. It's just going to always be one of those kind of interesting things to think about. But I'm looking forward to see what this domino effect is, you know, with Saban stepping down. Because they're not just going to give this Alabama job to some dude off the street. It's going to be coming presumably from somebody uh, maybe already a head coach at another major program, maybe already within the SEC. I don't know. Uh, it's going to be an interesting follow. Yeah, don't come after an ex-Alabama player that's a great head coach here in Houston either. Stay away from D'Amico Ryans. That's what I'm saying. Well, uh, I mean, if you're Alabama, you're making the phone call, aren't you? <laughs> it's not going to happen, but you're making the phone call, right? It's probably going to be a fairly short conversation, I would imagine. But uh, D'Amico does not seem like a guy that um, already has routinely said this regular season alone, he hasn't stopped. Didn't stop during the, the, the bye week. I mean, he has literally hit the ground running from Frisco to Houston, then the draft and camp in the regular season and then playoff games you've been playing in for literally two months now you know with your your lives at stake as been with the texans do you think that cat wants to mess with the transfer portal and recruiting and nil money and all that mess i don't think so he ain't going nowhere he's an nfl guy yeah and if people forget nick saban you probably have already seen this but nick saban's last play in college football coaching for alabama was against michigan that goal line stop that they made you know, in the semifinal game. So that's that's kind of how it all ended for him. It's kind of interesting that I, I, I think that he's ending it right before we go from a four-team playoff to a 12-team playoff, which maybe he wasn't a fan of. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't recall it of him, you know, talking about that. But it's just that, that's also interesting. I also got to ask you, Sean, before we go, man, I knew it. The Cougars couldn't handle Big 12. I mean, they're already one and one. What's going on? What what happened, Sean? Iowa State? Come on. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, can't say it like that. Iowa State, I mean, that's what they do. Iowa State, the last two seasons, I think, is 7-0 and against the top 10 teams or whatever. I mean, that's just that's what they do. They knock off the top guys. They played a really, really good game last night. And, you know, a game is not won in the first two minutes you know, 99% of the time, and I still don't think it was last night. But the Cougars just having to fight from behind all night long and kind of wait on Jamal Shedd to kind of be the guy to catch the hot hand there late, to get him back, to tie the game, even take a brief 51-50 to 50 lead. I just didn't like what they were doing defensively last night. I didn't like the adjustments in the paint. I thought they were in poor space all night long. And then, you know, look, some of the – some of the decisions on the shots. I think it was Shad actually who took that shot. There was 28 seconds left to go in that game, and he took a shot with about 18 seconds left on the clock, coming off of a little mini screen, a three pointer from the from the right wing. I just that to me that's just poor shot selection, and that highlight of the night for the Cougars 
for me. I just didn't I didn't like the looks that they gave themselves. It was to be had against Iowa State. Just moving the ball a little bit more got sticky. They settled for too many tough shots like that. And look, they'll be fine. I mean, I think they did the same dang thing last year to a degree. They started off like gangbusters, went 11 and 0, 12 and 0, 13 and 0, whatever it was. They hit a wall a little bit and then bam, they got it right. I think this team is just as good as last year's squad. They're as deep. Hopefully, they don't incur as many injuries as last season's squad. If they're able to stay pretty healthy, man, I think uh, they've got another long, long extended season ahead of them. Yeah, we just sort of take it for granted. Of course, I was kidding because Ames is a tough place to play. It's one of the toughest places to play uh, yeah. of any court in, hey, in college basketball. Did you see uh, Did you see the look that Juwan Roberts gave uh, the Russian fella for Iowa State, uh, Milicic or whatever his name is? Oh, that was an incredible shot that After dude, he yeah. hit that, so he hits that shot, they call timeout. And after the commercial break, they're coming back onto the floor after the timeout. <laughs> Milicic and Juwan Roberts are kind of converging, like, you know, right around half court or the free throw line or whatever. And Juwan Roberts just looks at him, looks him up and down. And is like, huh. like, if you're going to make that shot, like ain't much we can do. He made it on Roberts, who did about as good a job as you possibly could at contesting the dang thing. It was just a fadeaway 20-footer, like Dirk Nowitzki-esque. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, it wasn't even Dirk Nowitzki because, I mean, Dirk, you know, I don't remember him doing those baseline fadeaways with two guys. I mean, it looked a little bit more I mean, like Larry Bird or something like that. I don't yeah, know. maybe Bird. Like, I mean, you could say you could say Dream to a degree, but I mean, that's about six feet further out from the basket than Dream was taking those shots. I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I don't know who I would compare that to, but that was one of the better shots that you're going to see. I mean, just the contest for the Cougars. And, hey, Iowa State's defense reminded me of the Cougars' defense. It was very – it was like they were looking in the mirror all night. Yeah, I just I, – I thought the Cougars should have should have done a better job because, look, they even when they pressed them late, it was, it was a pretty easy break, you know, for the Cougars. You know, they were able to easily kind of get in their half-court sets and – I just didn't think they looked to make the extra pass. It, it was almost they felt like, especially on that uh, shot that uh, Jamal Shedd took on that right wing, that three ball that I was talking about, I just thought it was a bad time for that. You know, I mean, it's crunch time. You got to get a high percentage shot there. Attack the basket. Um, I, you got to be able to make that extra pass. And I thought Iowa State, like they were giving it to the Cougars. Once they got in their half court sets, man, I just, I thought the Cougars could have moved the ball a lot better in and out, especially. And they just didn't look to do it. Before we close, there are seven teams or seven cities, I should say, that produced a NFL playoff team and an MLB playoff team in the last year. And Houston's one of those seven cities that produced both of them. It's been a great run this last year with these two teams. Just can't wait to see playoff game, win or lose. I'm excited about this, Sean. I just I yeah. can't wait. Hey, you might go three for the big three. You know, the Rockets are currently in the eighth spot in the West. Um, you know, let's see what they can do. It's their turn to take a clear step forward this year for the first time in four seasons. So that's a possibility, too. I mean, it's uh, – I, I don't want to say necessarily that um, – you know, we're we're in the golden era of Houston sports, but we certainly could be getting close to getting back there. We were there for about a day, maybe a day and a half back in 2017, 
Astros win the World Series. You know, Rockets are doing their thing. They go that season, I think, to Game 7 against the Golden State Warriors. But damn Deshaun Watson and the Texans, you know, they couldn't give the Astros fans one day or the city of Houston one day. Deshaun has to tear his ACL, (laughs) you know, the day after the Astros win. Everybody's still hungover when they got the news. And so maybe now we're kind of regaining a little traction, getting back to that point in time. But uh, call me crazy, but in the next year, I think we probably are going to be having those conversations again about, man, can things get any better in the city of Houston from a sportscape standpoint? And it'd be a tough, tough, tough ask to say no. Yeah, the Cougs, you know, we, we just have to throw the Cougs back into this because, you know, they've been doing it with the Astros for the last few years and just been unbelievable. Um, and you mentioned the Rockets and the playoffs. It's the first part of our conversation yesterday with Rockets expert Frank, who is on with me. So go back and check it. If you haven't checked that out, we talk uh, Rockets, all all sorts of angles on the Rockets, uh, what's going on over there. But uh, looking forward to Saturday. And Sean, you're going to be at the game. So you're coming to us from NRG Stadium live about an hour or so after you're done out there. Yep, yep. Uh, Whenever I get done with locker room and all that good stuff, we'll uh, chop it up on the post game. All right, man. Can't wait. Talk to you then. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.